Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. I want to thank you for joining with us this morning as we worship together in the study of God's Word. And I want to welcome those of you who are joining us for the first time and pray that your experience with us will be spiritually enriching and rewarding. I would uh, encourage you to go to our website, wintonchurch.org, and uh, click on the sermon for today, which is entitled The Divine Announcement Part 1, in the right-hand column. A few lines down under the sermon title, you'll find uh, the outline uh, for, or the, the file uh, for the outline. Uh, click on that, and uh, it will come up. If you have an Adobe Acrobat reader, uh, it will come up in a PDF file, and uh, you can copy that off and use it uh, for your own notes as we preach this morning. I would also encourage you, if you haven't done so already, to subscribe to our website. We send out a daily devotional and called uh, The Encouraging Word. And uh, if you'll subscribe to the website, uh, then that will be sent out to you automatically every morning. It is a devotional prepared by the pastors of the church and sent out to encourage uh, all of our uh, church members, our church family, and our friends uh, with the Word of God each and every day. I want you to also note this morning we're going to observe communion. And so um, if you would like to participate in uh, the observance of the Lord's Supper with us this morning, you can go ahead and prepare for that by uh, getting a glass of juice and uh, some bread um, for the uh, service. We'll um, conclude today's service with uh, the observance of the Lord's Supper. I've had a number of individuals ask me, Pastor, when do you think the health crisis will be over and we can get back to our normal worship and fellowship here on the church campus? Um, I was talking to my daughter, Erin, on Friday, and um, her employment in Fresno is going to be locked down until the end of uh, May, and she is uh, an architect in a large firm in Fresno, and they're going to continue to work from home with their offices locked down until the end of May. So quite honestly, I don't know when this crisis is going to pass. I don't have the answer to that question, but I do know that when this crisis is over, things are not going to return to normal as we have understood normal. Things, I believe, are going to be forever changed, sometimes for the better, sometimes not so. Nancy and I are Civil War buffs, and we 
have a number of Civil War documentaries, and uh, we watch Civil War shows, and uh, on at times on vacation we go to Civil War sites and enjoy just uh, rehashing and reviewing uh, all that took place in one of the greatest events in our nation's history. If the Civil War taught us anything, it taught us that after a crisis is over, uh, the culture, the society is forever changed. Uh, we found the same to be true with the aftermath of World War I. In the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918, where over 50 million people died in that year, 1918 to 1919, in the Great Depression, after World War II, since the Cultural Revolution of the 1960s and 70s, we've all experienced changes that remain with us. Things never returned to normal. They've all had a profound effect on our thinking as well as on our doing. We've had to adjust to the aftermath of those events, and we will have to adjust to the aftermath of the coronavirus. Some have asked, well, can't we just ignore the governor's orders and the guidelines? Um, after all, other states are uh, not nearly as restrictive in their movements as we are. I was talking to my uh, older brother, Ronnie, today is his birthday. Happy birthday, Ronnie. Uh, and uh, we were telling him and his wife, Myrna, the restrictions that we have here. And uh, they kind of laughed and they, they thought it was kind of amazing that uh, they have a number of the freedoms, enjoying some of the freedoms there in Texas, uh, that we're not enjoying here in California. But, uh, friends, this is not Texas, and uh, we're not governed by a legislature that Texas is governed by, and each state has their own uh, requirements and their own standards and their own ways of dealing with the coronavirus pandemic, and we have our own way of dealing with that as well. And so my suggestion to us is that we uh, maintain uh, self-discipline and be encouraged that our government is acting on our uh, better behalf for our safety and for our protection. And so I would say uh, no to the question, can we just ignore uh, the governor's restrictions and uh, just come on down to the church campus and uh, re-engage in worship and in fellowship and in Bible study just like we used to. You see, I'm, uh, I'm not ready to begin a jail ministry from the inside. Uh, and uh, if there's one thing that uh, the restrictions have taught me these past several weeks is I don't do very well cooped up at home. And so I know I won't do very well if I was um, consigned to a small cell down at the county jail. So uh, I'm just encouraging us to uh, bite the bullet and to continue to follow uh, the orders of the government and do what we need to do to keep uh, each other safe uh, from the coronavirus and from the spread of the coronavirus. 
I do not think that what uh, the government is engaged in is a conspiracy, and I don't think uh, that the government is trying to shut down churches permanently. I think that they are doing what they feel uh, is best for our state in trying to keep people from becoming infected, uh, from becoming seriously ill, or for even dying because of coronavirus. And by the way, let me remind you of the Apostle Paul's uh, encouragement to us in Romans chapter 13, that we are to respect the government authorities, because they have been ordained by God for our safety and for our well-being. And to resist that authority is to oppose the ordinance of God. Now, if and when the time comes when the government opposes the Christian faith, then we have the right to disobey. And that's clearly seen in Acts uh, where the apostles disobeyed the rulers over them that they should not preach and teach in the name of Jesus. And they certainly disobeyed that order. But the government is not persecuting the church, and they're certainly not trying to shut down Christian activity. They're simply trying to keep our citizens safe. And so we want to encourage you uh, to just hang on, to calm down, uh, to be patient, to take one day at a time, Pray that the Holy Spirit will lead our um, leaders uh, to do the right thing, to make the right decisions. Uh, Use your time uh, to study the Bible, to meditate upon the Word of God. Continue to be faithful to the Lord and continue to be a witness of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to others and to minister to one another during the days of the crisis. Uh, Call uh, each other, emails, texts, uh, send out cards and brief letters to let people know that you're thinking about them and that you're praying for them. So with that said, I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you will please, to the gospel of Luke chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at verses 26 through 38. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. Now while you're turning there, I simply want to state that we have been working our way through the story of Jesus Christ as recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, I have, uh, in some of this downtime that we have, I've been harmonizing the Gospels into a single narrative that I hope to have published before too long and to be able to distribute to you uh, so that you can uh, get a a bigger picture, a, a greater picture of the life of Jesus Christ through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as their narratives are uh, melded into a single narrative. We started this study back in September the 1st of 2019. We've had some interruptions along the way. But uh, since that time, we've already covered section 1, which is um, a study on who Jesus really is. We've also covered section 2 on the birth and the early life of John the Baptist. 
And then today, we will begin section three on the birth and the early life of Jesus Christ. And this section three will take us from the announcements of the birth of Jesus to Mary and Joseph and to others. It'll take us from those announcements uh, through the 18 silent years of Jesus' young adulthood, all the way to the beginning of the ministry of John the Baptist. It's going to take us several months to accomplish this, but I believe it will be a rewarding journey. And I believe that we will have time uh, to engage in this study as we move along through the story of Jesus. Now in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, follow along as I read, if you will please. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who is called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of God, and we ask his blessing upon the reading and the study of his word. Now, I want to initially state that this is the beginning of the story of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It's the beginning of the story of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We've already looked at the beginning of the gospel in section 1. We've looked at the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry, uh, his life and early years in section 2. And now we're going to explore the beginning of the story of the incarnation of Jesus. This is not the beginning of the story of Jesus Christ. It is the beginning of the story of his incarnation. The story of Jesus Christ began in eternity past, before the creation In John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, 
The Apostle John tells us that Christ existed face to face, that is, in the very presence of God in eternity past. He also tells us, along with the Father and the Holy Spirit, He created the universe. The Apostle Paul affirms the activity of Christ in the creation story in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16, and in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. But the story of uh, Christ did not end uh, in eternity past or with the creation. Christ was in his creation interacting with mankind throughout human history. When you study through the scriptures and you uh, are open to learning from what the Bible has to say, you'll realize that he was in fellowship with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Enoch walked with him for 300 years before Enoch was taken to heaven. He chose Noah and Noah's family to build the ark and to survive the flood, thus preserving humanity from the judgment of God for sin. He was in fellowship with Job, who lived in the land of Uz. He was a friend to Abraham and called Abraham out of Ur in the land of the Chaldeans and walked with him and fellowshiped with him all the way to the land of Canaan, which would become the promised land of the children of Israel. He wrestled with Jacob at the brook Jabbok. He commissioned Moses at Mount Sinai to go into Egypt and to secure the release of the Hebrew people from Egyptian slavery. And he counseled with Moses personally in the tent of meeting. And he was with Moses when Moses died on Mount Nebo. It was the Christ who commissioned Joshua at the Jordan River to lead the children of Israel across that great barrier into the land of promise. He called Samuel to the priesthood in Shiloh. He was in fellowship with David out in the fields of Bethlehem. He was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace in Babylon. And he was with Daniel in the lion's den in Medo-Persia. These are just a few of the many appearances of Christ among his people prior to his incarnation. These are called uh, theophanies and more properly Christophanies, the appearances of Christ before the incarnation. But here in Luke chapter 1 and verse 26, we have the beginning of his ministry in human flesh. It is the beginning of the fulfillment of the plan of God for our salvation. Now this plan of God for salvation was not a last-ditch effort on God's part to save us from the curse of sin. The plan of salvation was established long before the universe was created in eternity past. 
First Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, the Apostle Peter writes to us, Knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things, like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct, received by traditions from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. He was set apart by the Father. He agreed to the plan of God's salvation for human souls in eternity past, before the foundations of the world were set. In Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8, the Apostle John writes, All who dwell on the earth will worship him, that is, worship Christ. Those whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The Apostle John simply reiterates the truth that the Apostle Peter gave to us in his letter. That Christ was determined to be the sacrifice for sin and to fulfill the plan of God for salvation long before the worlds were created. Not only was God's plan for salvation established in eternity past, but the plan of God for our salvation became a promise to man beginning in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, the Lord speaks to Satan and he tells Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is called the Proto-Evangelium. It is the first gospel. It is the first announcement of the good news that man will be saved from the judgment of God through a Savior who is to come. In Genesis chapter 49, verses 8 through 10, Moses writes that Jacob blessed his son Judah. And he said, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Until Shiloh comes. The use of the term Shiloh here is not a reference to a town that is going to be uh, acknowledged in the Old Testament when the children of Israel move into the land of promise. It is a reference to a person, the scepter, which is uh, uh, an instrument that a king holds in his hands to signify authority as a ruler. The scepter shall not depart from his hand. Shiloh will be a ruler. 
And so Jacob is speaking to Judah and telling him that through you, a ruler will emerge. Someone who will be, bring peace and rest and tranquility because that's what the word Shiloh means. This is a reaffirmation of the coming of the Messiah that God gave in the Garden of Eden. And then you go to uh, much, much later in Israel's history into Daniel chapter 18 verses 15 and 18 where the Lord speaks of a prophet greater than Moses who will come with the spirit of power and with the word of the Lord. And in Psalm chapter 2 verses 6 through 9 the Lord speaks through the psalmist and says, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall scatter them like earthenware. God was not speaking of the children of Israel as a nation that will rule over all of the earth. He was not speaking of David who would be king forever and would rule over all of the earth. He is speaking of the Christ, the Messiah, whom he had promised earlier, centuries earlier, that that Messiah would come and would be a ruler over his people. I have installed my king, an individual, a person. In Isaiah chapter 9 verses 6 and 7, this promise of God is expanded or clarified, gives us a greater understanding of, of what God is talking about and to whom God is speaking about to the children of Israel. In Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, Isaiah writes, For a child will be born to us, not a nation, but a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. He will rule, in other words, his shoulders strong and broad to rule the nations of the earth. The government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Again, God is not speaking through the prophet Isaiah of a people that would rise up to be the rulers over the earth. A child will be born, the Lord says. He will have a government that is eternal. And he will bring through his government peace upon the earth forever. He's not speaking of David here. Because he says that on the throne of David and over his kingdom, this coming king will rule and reign. So he's speaking of someone other than the nation of Israel. He's speaking of someone other than King David. He is speaking of someone who is... Eternal, 
someone who will reign forever. And in case we're not convinced by that yet, he goes on to speak to us in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, to chapter 53 and verse 12. And I'm not going to read uh, those verses to you, but I will read the core verses that really open our understanding to who it is that God is speaking about. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, to chapter 53, verse 12, is the song of the suffering servant. And I know that for many uh, Hebrew people and uh, Hebrew rabbis, they interpret the suffering servant as being the nation of Israel. Because down through the ages, the nation of Israel has been persecuted, abused, and people have, rulers and monarchs and even uh, cultures have tried to eradicate the Jewish people. Uh, most recently, you have that uh, during World War II in the Nazi regime as well as in the regime of Stalin in Russia. But God is not speaking about the nation of Israel because the description that he gives of the suffering servant is personal. He's speaking of a person who is going to suffer in a very specific way to bring salvation to God's people. And there's really only one person in all of history that we have that befits the description that's given to us here in these verses. Listen. To the words of Isaiah, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him as a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities." The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourgings we are healed. Impossible that the children of Israel, the sons and daughters of Abraham, would bear such a responsibility, for they themselves were sinners and unable to redeem anyone from sin. They themselves were in need of salvation. And that's why Christ came. He came to the household of Abraham first, that he might speak to them the word of repentance and salvation in him. But they rejected him, and they nailed him to a cross. What they did not understand, that was in the plan of God, that the Messiah would go to the cross and not only bear the sins of a rebellious people called by God's name, but he would bear the sins of the entire world. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Daniel writes, I kept looking in night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. 
And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Daniel gives us this final word regarding the promise of God and defines even clearer who this one is that God has promised would come. He is the Son of Man who will come to establish His eternal kingdom. Well, all of that is preliminary stuff. We'll get to the sermon now. Here in Luke chapter 1, verse 26, we have the beginning of the fulfillment of God's plan and God's promise of salvation to a lost and to a condemned humanity. And there is a theme, not only to this sermon this morning, but to the entire section 3 and to the remainder of the story of Jesus. And that theme is simply this. Jesus entered our world as he enters our life at the level of everyday experience with everyday people. And as we continue on in our study of the life of Jesus Christ, this truth is going to become more and more apparent to us. Jesus entered our world as he enters into our life at the level of everyday experience with everyday people. So bear that in mind as we continue our study. This section 3 is going to take a little bit of time for us to cover because there's so many things in chapter 1 and chapter 2, the Gospel of Luke, and also in Matthew uh, that are very important for us to look at. So we're not going to rush through this. We're going to take our time and we're going to explore many different avenues that will help to enrich our understanding of Jesus Christ. This morning, I want to focus in on two truths here in the verses that I read at the beginning of the service. First of all, the truth that God is still sending messengers. God is still sending messengers. And the second truth is that God is still selecting people. God is still sending messengers and God is still selecting or choosing people to be in his kingdom. First of all, God sends an unexpected messenger. Look at this in verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. God sent a messenger, an unexpected messenger, an angel to announce the implementation of his plan of salvation. Now think for just a moment. As you go back over your biblical history, is it not true 
that whenever God proposes something really big, something that is life-changing, something that, is, uh, that, that garners the attention uh, of a great number of people, he always sends a messenger first. He always prepares people for what's coming next. He always sends a messenger before something really big that he's going to do. He sent Noah to warn people of the coming flood. He sent Joseph to warn Egypt of the coming famine. He sent Moses to announce the release of Israel from slavery. He sent the prophets to warn the nations of God's judgment for sin. As you look through Scripture, God always sends a messenger to announce His plans so that people can understand that what is going on is directly from the hand of God, that it is God's plan and that there is a purpose behind it. So that there is no mistaking that we did these things in our own power, by our own ingenuity, according to our own abilities. abilities. These things have come about because of God's plan and purpose. So he sends the angel Gabriel to announce the coming Savior to Joseph in the Gospel of Matthew and to Mary here in the Gospel of Luke. Now, angelology is a very intriguing study. Angelology is the biblical study of angels. And it's very intriguing. It can be a little bit um, confusing from time to time. Uh, and it's a study that uh, we will engage in, if the Lord permits, some way down, somewhere down the road, but we don't have uh, the time. And that's really not our purpose here this morning. But just to note that God sent a messenger from heaven's throne. He sent a messenger to a town in Galilee to a young lady to bring word of something great that God is about to perform. Now there are two angels uh, specifically named in scripture. One is Gabriel, which we're looking at here. Uh, and he seems to be a great messenger angel of God. And then there is Michael. And we read about Michael from time to time as a great warrior angel. And some believe that Michael is the guardian angel of the Hebrew people. This is not the first time that we hear about the angel Gabriel. We have to go back to the uh, prophet Daniel in chapter 8 where we hear about the angel Gabriel, he interpreted Daniel's vision of the goat and the ram. And then in chapter 9, he spoke to Daniel regarding the coming Messiah and the 70 weeks of years and the great tribulation that will come. And then in chapters 10, 11, and 12, he reveals to Daniel God's plan for the Jews in the last days. It was in this same visitation with Daniel that he mentions the strong angel, Michael, who helped him overcome the demonic ruler of Persia and who will rescue the elect of God from the destruction of the last days. So here we have the mention of the messenger angel Gabriel and the strong warrior angel Michael. 
Michael is mentioned later on in the New Testament as well, but we'll get to those uh, passages at another time. It was Gabriel who spoke to Zacharias concerning the birth of his son, John. Gabriel who spoke to Mary about God's plan for her in the birth of Jesus Christ. It's Gabriel who will speak to Joseph in Matthew's gospel, and we'll get to that a little later on. But it's Gabriel who speaks to Joseph about the birth of Jesus Christ. So we have a messenger, an unexpected messenger who comes to share some good news with some very unworthy people. Notice also in verse 26, Gabriel was sent from God to bring Mary the greatest news that she will ever hear. Sent from God to Mary who will hear from his lips the greatest news that she will ever hear. She's going to be the mother of God's only son, Jesus Christ, the long-awaited Messiah and the Savior of the world. It's news that the world has waited for, for centuries. It's news that the children of Israel have waited for, for centuries. God's eternal plan of salvation is about to be fulfilled. God's promise of a deliverer and a true king of Israel and the savior of the world is going to be realized in the next several months. God spoke this promise and revealed this plan to Mary's ancestors some 4,000 years earlier. And he continued to speak the promise and to reveal more and more and more of his uh, his plan down through the ages. And you can see through the patriarchal era and the era of the judges and the kings and the era of the prophets, you can see this scarlet thread of God continuing to emphasize his plan of salvation and his promise of a coming Messiah to his people. For 4,000 years, God spoke to mankind of his plan to save them from the one through the one who would offer his life as a sacrifice for sin. And then, for some 400 years, God was silent. God did not speak to his people in Israel. He did not send any prophets. He did not send any angels. At the close of the Old Testament, God became silent. In Israel, but now he speaks once more, but this time to Israel. And the message is all that I have promised you and all that you have longed for and waited for is now about to come true. Messiah is going to be born, salvation has come. God still speaks today. God still speaks today. In fact, he's been speaking to us for the last 2,000 years. 
In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the apostle writes, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Prior to Christ, God spoke to individuals through Christophanies, theophanies, through dreams and through visions, through angels, through miracles, through prophets, through kings. But the apostle says, since the time of Christ, God has chosen not to speak to us anymore. Because all that he needs to tell us, he has told us through his Son, Jesus Christ. All that we need to know about God has been given to us through his Son. All that we need to know about salvation, all that we need to know about eternity, all that we need to know about judgment, all that we need to know about love and grace and mercy and kindness and gentleness and peace, God has revealed to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Prior to the announcement of the angel Gabriel to Mary, God has been speaking to people about the coming Savior. In His announcement to Mary, God spoke of the Savior whose appearing was imminent. And now God has been speaking to us for over 2,000 years of the Savior who has indeed come. The Savior who has come. He has spoken to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. He is speaking to us through His Holy Spirit, who tells us all about who Jesus is, what Jesus has said, and the promises that Jesus has given. He is speaking through His written Word, the Bible. And it affirms everything about Jesus that we know to be true. He is speaking through His church, the church that is faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, the church that believes in His inspired, inerrant Word, the church that holds fast to Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the only Savior and the only Lord that God has provided for mankind. He's speaking to us. He's telling us. He's inviting us to look to Jesus for the forgiveness of sin, for the promise of new life in Him. And for the assurance of eternal life in his kingdom. God sent an unexpected messenger. And God is still sending out his message through his son Jesus Christ. His Holy Spirit. His written word. His people called the church. He is still speaking to the peoples of the world. But secondly, God not only sent an unexpected messenger, he also selected an uncommon maiden. Look at verses 26 and verses 27. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. 
Now, I'll say this right up front. Mary was a remarkable person. She was a common individual, yes, but she was a very remarkable young lady. Her name means the exalted one. And I'm sure that Mary's father and mother didn't have any idea as, how, as to how Mary would fulfill the meaning of her name. She is the exalted one. Notice also that she is a virgin. Parthenos is the Greek word, Parthenos. It means a maiden. It means an unmarried daughter. It means one who has had no sexual relationships. The word Parthenos is never used uh, with regard to a woman who's been married or a woman who's had sexual relationships with a man. It speaks of a woman that is pure and chaste, a woman that has not engaged in sexual intercourse. And this word is a very specific word, and it's the word that Luke uses to describe Mary. And I have to believe, since Luke is a physician, he knows what he's talking about. He understands that we're not talking about a young woman, we're talking about a young virgin. Look in verse 34 of Luke chapter 1. After Gabriel announces that Mary will bear the Christ child, she responds, how can this be since I am a virgin? And she uses the same word, parthenos. Her words are very clear. Understand, dear friends, there's a, there's a reason why Scripture speaks of Mary as a virgin. The virgin birth is part of the miraculous story of Jesus. It's a, it is a core belief in the Christian faith with regard to Jesus. Now, I know that there are some who don't believe in the virgin birth of Christ, and there are some who say it's not important and it's not necessary to believe in the virgin birth. But my question is, if it's not important and if it's not necessary, why would God put it in his word? Why would Dr. Luke describe her as being a virgin? Why would she confess to the messenger of God anything but the truth concerning her sexuality? Dear friends, to not believe in the virgin birth of Christ is not to believe in the word of God. And if you cannot believe the word of God here, you can't believe the word of God anywhere. If the story of the incarnation is not true, then neither is the crucifixion or the resurrection. You can't believe any of it. It is a cardinal doctrine in true Christian faith. And it is given to us in God's holy word by people inspired by the Holy Spirit of God who would never lie to us and by individuals who experience, whose experiences testify to the truth that they are writing. 
Notice also that Mary is engaged. Now, we're going to enter into uh, a bit of information here that is going to be a little bit uncomfortable for some of you, but that's okay. She is engaged. Nestao is the word. Betrothed, as it is translated, espoused. But to understand what the Bible is talking about here, you have to understand that Mary, who is betrothed to Joseph, is, is like our engagement, but it is far more serious than our modern-day engagement. Betrothal was a legal binding contract. It was arranged by the parents of the children, yes, the children, who are going to be married one day. According to Roman law, the minimum age for a girl to be betrothed is age 12. And for a boy to be betrothed is age 14. And the Jews adopted uh, these ages into their cultural belief and their cultural practice to ensure the virginity of the one being betrothed. And so moms and dads got together and they selected the person that their child was going to marry. For Mary, somewhere around age 12 or 13, her parents got together and selected a mate for her. And then they met with uh, the boy's parents and they talked it over and they agreed uh, that she would be married to Joseph. Then a legal document was drawn up uh, and agreed upon. A dowry was set and exchanged. And then a wedding would be held soon after puberty uh, became a reality in the life of the girl. Usually about a year after uh, the agreement was made for betrothal. During this time of betrothal, the couple did not live together and only death or divorce could cancel the contract. During the year of betrothal, the young girl had to go through an examination, an official examination to verify her virginity. And then she had to live in her mom and dad's home, living a chaste life, separated from her betrothed, doing what she should be doing in home, learning how to cook, learning how to uh, conduct a home, learning how to do the various things that uh, a young woman and a young mother and a young wife would do. The boy would begin preparing a home for himself and his new bride, usually uh, in his parents' home. Um, I guess a lot of us are Hebrew nowadays because our kids are returning home to live with us, but um, usually there was an add-on to dad's house, uh, the boy's father's home, and they would live in that add-on. The wedding would take place, as I stated, about a year after the betrothal was uh, agreed upon. And then there would be uh, a wedding feast. And it would usually take place um, uh, at the, uh, the home of the uh, bride. 
and uh, it would last about a week long depending upon the status of the family. So, Mary was betrothed to Joseph, and we'll learn about him a little bit later on. She was 12 to 14 years old. We also understand that she was a descendant of David, according to Luke's genealogy in Luke chapter 3, and we'll discuss that later as well. But Mary, other than what we're told here, we know nothing more about her. She lived in relative obscurity. We don't know uh, her father or mother. We do have her father's name in the genealogy, but we don't know the name of her mother. We don't know anything about her father. We have no record of her upbringing, her habits, her activities, her concerns. As an unknown girl living in a despised town, because Nazareth was where she lived, and Nazareth was a despised town. And she lived in a Gentile-infested region of ancient Israel. So, you have a young girl coming out of obscurity, living in a town that was despised by most of the Jews, in a region of Israel that was also despised by most of the Jews, Galilee of the Gentiles. So Mary is coming into the picture here in Luke's gospel with three strikes against her. Why would God pick her to be the mother of his son? Why would God pick this unobscure young girl to be the father, to be the mother of his son? Look at verse 48. Mary is a humble person. She says in her Magnificat, For he is regarded for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. He has had regard for his, the humble state of his bond servant. She's a humble girl. And we know as we read through the story of Jesus that Mary never exalted herself above other women. She never grasped at the glory of her son. She was content to be and to do what God had ordained. When she's told of her role as the mother of the Christ, she did not brag. She didn't take on an air of superiority or of haughtiness. For the most part, Mary stays behind the scenes. Why? She is the mother of the Christ child. Why? She is the chosen vessel through whom God will bless the nations. Why shouldn't she be exalted? Why shouldn't she be recognized? Why shouldn't she be famous throughout the land? Because that's not who Mary was. She was a humble young girl. And during her pregnancy and in raising her child and all through his life, even up until his death and resurrection, you never see Mary standing on a pedestal. Second, she was always submissive to God. She accepted her role without question. Her response to the angel Gabriel was certainly an unusual response for any young girl. But because she was a humble 
young girl. An obedient young girl. She was also submissive to the Word of God in her life. You'll notice that, again, she accepted her role as the angel Gabriel gave that to her, gave that information to her. She did not question it as Zacharias did when Gabriel spoke to him about the birth of his son. Mary did not question Gabriel. She didn't complain. She didn't excuse herself from the responsibility like Moses did when God called him to go down into Egypt to secure the release of the Hebrew people from Egyptian slavery. Mary does not excuse herself. She doesn't bargain with God. She embraces the will of God in her life. She is humble. She is submissive to God. And she's also faithful to God and to Joseph. She remained a virgin until after she gave birth to Jesus. God honored her and blessed her with grace to maintain her passions, to maintain her thinking, to maintain her faithfulness to him and to her betrothed Joseph. But I want to underscore a truth here. God did not choose Mary because she was humble. He didn't choose her because she was obedient and he didn't choose her because she was faithful. God chose Mary to be the mother of Jesus because God chose Mary to be the mother of Jesus. Just like he chose Noah, just like he chose Moses, just like he chose David, and on and on and on. God chose Mary because God chose Mary. God knew these things about her character, but he didn't base his choosing her on these characteristics. Countless other girls in Israel had the same qualities and characteristics, but he didn't choose them. He chose her. And he graced her with the choice. Look at verse 28. Gabriel greets Mary by saying, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. Favored one. Kekkeritomene. Kekkeritomene is the word favored one. It means the blessed one. It means the one having been graced by God. Mary was chosen to bear the Christ child because God chose her to be the mother of the Christ child. This touches one of the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith, certainly one of the cardinal doctrines of the biblical faith, and that's the doctrine of election, which is one of the great doctrines of Scripture. And, and again, we're not going to get into that this morning because that's not the focus of our attention. But God selected her. God chose her. And that underscores the fact that God never does anything by chance. 
The elective purposes of God are seen throughout Scripture. From Genesis all the way through Revelation, you see the doctrine of election in force. God never does anything by chance. His plans are exact. His promises are explicit. His timing is impeccable, perfect, spot on. All that God does is calculated precisely to the nth degree, even in the salvation of people. God is sovereign over all things. In John chapter 6 and verse 44, the apostle writes these words of Jesus, No one can come to me, Jesus is speaking, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, draws that person, and I will raise him up in the last day. You cannot come to Jesus Christ unless God the Father draws you to Jesus Christ. John chapter 6 and verse 65, For this reason, Jesus says, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. You cannot become a Christian unless God the Father grants that grace in your life. You cannot wake up some morning and say, well, you know what? I think today I'm going to be a Christian. I think today I'm going to start following Jesus Christ. Dear friends, if God is not involved in the drawing, in the wooing, in the ministering in your life, in your mind, in your heart, in your spirit, through his Holy Spirit, you will not desire to be a follower of Jesus Christ. John chapter 17, verses 1 and 2, in the high priestly prayer of Jesus, he speaks to the Father and he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that all that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Let me read that again. Father, the hour has come. The prayer of Jesus Christ to his heavenly Father, the night that he was to be betrayed, arrested, condemned to die, and crucified the next day. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. You do not have eternal life unless you have been given to Jesus Christ by the Father. John chapter 17 and verse 6, Jesus again in prayer states, I have manifest or I have made known your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. But I think Paul just really nails the doctrine of election down firmly in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus, And who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Verse 4. 
just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Did you see that? Did you hear that? He chose us in him before the foundations of the world were set. That is the doctrine of of election. God has chosen us. God has chosen uh, all the way down the line those whom he wanted to serve him in specific ways. He chose Noah to save humanity from the judgment of the flood. He chose Abraham to be the father of Israel. He chose Moses to champion the release of the Hebrew people from Egypt. He chose Joshua to lead Israel across the Jordan and into the promised land. He chose Samuel to lead his people to repentance and faith as they turn back to God. He chose David to be the greatest king of, of all of his people. He chose Mary to be the mother of Jesus Christ. And dear friend, if you're a Christian today, he chose you to be one of his own. Mary was a common Jewess. She was born from common stock. She was not an extraordinary human as her son would be. She was not sinless and she never was sinless. She understood her need for salvation. In verse 47, she makes that very clear. She says in Luke chapter 1 verse 47, And my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Mary understood that there was sin in her life. She understood, even at her young age, she understood that God was not always on her thoughts, was not always the motive behind her, behind her actions, was not always in her affections. She understood that she was a sinner in need of salvation. The text does not tell us, and it does not state that Mary was full of grace. It states that she was the recipient of grace. She could never give grace to anyone, nor can she give grace to anyone today. She can only receive the grace that God extended to her. Mary was a common young girl in Nazareth of Galilee, born like all the rest of us, with a fallen sinful nature with dreams of being married and having children, longing for a good life in the land that she was born in. She became an uncommon maiden because God chose her to serve him by giving birth to the Messiah, to the Lord, and to the Savior of his people, and to all who believe and trust in him. And God is still in the business of choosing common people to become uncommon servants of Jesus Christ. There is nothing about any one of us that's noteworthy that would catch the eye of God. There is nothing in any one of us 
that God would look upon and say, Ah, now there is someone who can add to the work of the kingdom. Not so. If you're a Christian, you're a Christian not because you chose Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but because He chose you to be His disciple, His student, His follower, and His servant to minister in His name. If you're a preacher, or a Bible teacher, or a missionary, or an evangelist, or a deacon, or an elder, or a pastor, it's because God chose you to fulfill that role in His kingdom. He chose you. He called you. He saved you. He sanctified you. He justified you. He gifted you. He empowered you. And He's matured you in the faith to send you out in His name to serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords until He comes to take us home to be with Him in glory. That's the sovereignty of God. That's the elective purposes of God. And I pray that the Holy Spirit of God will make us humble servants and obedient servants and faithful servants of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, until that day comes. We're going to now observe communion. If you would like to prepare yourself at home for that observance, uh, go ahead and make those preparations. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord that which I have also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take the bread, and as the Lord instructs us, Take it in remembrance of him. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take the cup and let's drink the cup in remembrance of Christ. The Apostle Paul continues, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And we pray his coming will be soon. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you that there is nothing accidental with you. There is nothing circumstantial. There is nothing incidental in your plan or in your purposes. That every move that you have made and every move that you continue to make 
is according to a plan and a purpose. And that your ministry, Lord Jesus, has been to leave the courts of glory to be clothed in human flesh, to live and to minister to us in the years of your life here on the earth, to go to a cross and to offer your body and your life as the only perfect sacrifice acceptable unto God the Father that satisfies his justice for our sin. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you agreed to this plan long before sin entered into the human experience. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were willing to carry this plan through as painful, as horrific as it was. Bearing in your heart and in your mind the rejection of your own people and the betrayal of one of your own disciples and the abandonment of your friends at the moment when you needed them most. But I thank you, you saw that it was necessary. And there is no way that salvation could become an experience in any human life without such sacrifice. And you willingly gave it. Thank you. We will forever be thankful to you. And now, Lord Jesus, I pray that we will remember our recommitment to you here at this table. That we will remember that sacrifice. And we will share that sacrifice, not only in every word that we speak, but also in everything that we do. We will share that gospel with those around us until that time when you call us home. Father, until the time that the virus crisis has subsided, I pray that you will keep us patient, that you will keep our eyes focused on you, that you will keep us faithful to you, and that, Father, you will keep us actively serving, ministering to each other, to your honor and to your glory. And I pray, Lord, that the time will come very, very soon when we can be back together again in your house and worship together in fellowship together. I long for that day. I look for that day as I do, as I know many of our people do. But until that time, may you be honored and may you be glorified in all that we say, in all that we do. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, I pray. Amen and amen. God bless you. God give you a great and peaceful day today. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. 
If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.